Hey everyone, welcome back to TGC. I'm Kate DeLeon and I'm here with my co-host Jazz Jackson. Today, we have special guest, Laís Santoro. Laís is an environmental activist and she's a sophomore at Johns Hopkins. Um, we're so excited to have you. You want to just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Laís. I'm a sophomore at Hopkins. I'm studying public health and environmental studies. I'm currently in Baltimore, but I am from Pennsylvania and I'm originally from Brazil. I immigrated here when I was younger and all of my family um, still lives there. So I, a lot of my like environmental uh, work stems from the fact that like I'm from there. A lot of my family, you know, is seeing like environmental changes um, as a result of like climate change. Um, and I'm a big advocate for climate justice more specifically and intersectional environmentalism, uh, which has been a, a term that's been going around for a while. Um, but I guess some of the work I do here at Hopkins uh, is around uh, divestment from fossil fuels. Um, I work with their, the campaign here, as well as uh, food justice efforts. So working on more sustainable uh, contracts with different food providers, cutting certain contracts with big companies and corporations that aren't sustainable, um, aren't ethical or just really uh, in many ways. And that's with Real Food Hopkins, as well as a national organization called Uprooted and Rising, uh, which is more focused on like food sovereignty, food justice on a national level. And I've done a lot of work with Sunrise Movement in the past, probably about like two years uh, with like training and phone banking and a lot of electoral um, policy work. And I've, I've done a few other things, but I guess I'll just, I'll just start there and yeah, I've just been doing that as like a student as well. And it's been weird with COVID doing everything virtually, so many Zoom calls and also trying to find a balance as like a student. Uh, I also work, so trying to balance all of that. But yeah, that's, I guess, a little bit about me. Yeah, all of the uh, projects that you named, like I was like, oh, tell me about this. Oh, tell me about that. Oh, so like, <laughs> if you could just tell me, like, if they're, they're all really interesting. Um, yeah. Like, the food contracts um, piqued my interest in, I think you said intersectional environmental yeah. something. I'm not yeah. sure. So yeah, I'll start with that. I'll start with that intersectional environmentalism. Uh, so I believe that was like a term that kind of came around more by a um, an activist in, on, I, I know on Instagram, her name is Leah. Her Instagram handle, I believe is Green Girl Leah. And basically it's all, it's the focus of it is to make, environmentalism, not just focused on like the natural nature, uh, conservation, um, just talking about climate change and just talking about the science, like making it a really intersectional conversation about uh, racial justice, health equity, food justice, like talking about all these different aspects to climate justice uh, that isn't typically discussed and also giving more power to black indigenous people of color, especially in the field since environmentalism is a very white dominated field uh, historically and still presently, which is a huge problem because, you know, environmental justice issues don't typically impact white, uh, white communities. So it's really important to be uh, having those intersectional conversations. And that it also kind of stems with like climate justice, but I believe intersectional environmentalism is like a more comprehensive term and is really trying to push for more equitable and intersectional conversations and climate justice conversations. So 
uh, that's something that uh, I really um, am a big fan of and think everyone should be talking about in a certain way. Like I major environmental studies here and it's very annoying how much we just talk about like the science of like climate change and all of that stuff. And I'm like, I don't wanna talk about this. Like I know it's important, but it's like, it's really not that important in the grand scheme of things when, you know, there are people who are breathing in toxic air all the time and, uh, you know, just not having access to any food at all and living in like food apartheid. Like that's not really the most important thing. So it really bothers me, but you know, that's something that, you know, it's always trying to intersect different things here and there. Like if you talk about like, Bio, biological conservation or whatever. Um, just always making sure to make a note like, oh, this also impacts like indigenous people and communities and their cultures. And it's not just about like protecting all the animals, it's about protecting the people. So I think that's something that says a little bit about like intersectional environmentalism. Uh, the there's an Instagram handle though, it's called intersectional environmentalist that you can visit. And the website is also that as well. But yeah. Could you elaborate more on what intersectional environmentalism is? And like yeah. how exactly like climate change and like social justice are like how they're interconnected and how can they can like affect like marginalized communities? Yes, totally. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me. So environmental justice kind of goes into a deeper discussion about the issue of like environmental, um, like climate change and environmental other environmental issues. So I'll use... Baltimore as an example. So it's a very urban city and you know cities each have their different issues but normally if you talk about just like environmental issues you can talk about like water quality or you know food quality those kinds of things are like environmental issues air quality but then when you talk about environmental justice you talk about how um, the fact that air quality particularly impacts uh, predominantly black neighborhoods especially here in Baltimore. So there's an incinerator in Southern Baltimore. And basically it's located near a very, a uh, predominantly white community, uh, black community, sorry. And basically what happens is you think, you know, it's clean, it's breathing, it's uh, not breathing clean air, putting out clean air. Um, and it's, you know, you'd think an incinerator is a good thing because it's using uh, waste to uh, create energy and electricity and people think it's like clean. But what happens is there's little like particulate matter, which are really, really small, just small things like toxic particles that are floating around in the air. And the smaller it is, the more harmful it can be to human health and the deeper it can go into your lungs and cause respiratory issues. Uh, so that the community that lives like right near the incinerator has worser cases of asthma. Sorry, what, what was city? I want to know like where exactly? Uh, Baltimore, and I I don't know that. I live in Baltimore. <laughs> I live in Baltimore. I live right in the like in the yeah. City, it's like so. the where the incinerator is. I forget the name of the actual neighborhood, but it's the Brasco incinerator, and basically it has a ton of like the particular matter, and it's of course going to impact the community nearest around it. So the Brasco incinerator is like one big issue that is a, an environmental justice issue, and with Sunrise, I did a lot of work with Sunrise Baltimore. I, um, for a personal reason, had to, I was originally outreach coordinator, but I don't, I'm not in that position anymore. But I, we did a lot of advocacy work to, you know, put push action towards that policy towards 
uh, for the regulation on the incinerator. Um, but that's also just one problem. Um, another one is like the issue of food apartheid, which is a form of like food injustice, but basically the fact is that uh, some communities don't have like live like they have a radius and in that radius like they don't have like any access to to food really nutritious food like grocery stores supermarkets and that's an environmental justice issue because it also impacts predominantly predominantly black neighborhoods and when if you look at like a map of I can also I can send some resources but if you look at like a map of Baltimore and you see where all the food, uh, like the supermarkets are located. There's, you know, a decent amount in like the Northern part of the city and then not as much in East and West Baltimore, which are, uh, have higher black populations of black people. And so I think that's also another important issue that we need to think about. And also with Hopkins, if we also think about like housing, that's another, a really big problem because of things like lead poisoning and in homes that you know are older they typically have like lead paint chips and those paint chips can also cause uh, respiratory issues uh, especially for young children who are playing with toys and stuff and then their toys get the lead paint on them and sometimes they play with them you know they're little kids they put them in their mouth so then lead poisoning becomes an issue as well and so I think those are a few examples, but environmental justice is basically focusing on those, those conversations. Like it's not just, it's not just the problem of lead poisoning or food injustice. It's like who it's impacting the most and like the intersections with systemic racism and things that have been like historically ignored and policies of like housing and housing discrimination. It, it's a lot of things, but it's basically just focusing on not just talking about like the science or the natural side of things, but the way it's impacting actual people, their lives, their health, and their opportunities, I guess, so. There's like so many different ones that you're like a part of. And so just like, for me, like the, how you say it, Bresco incinerator? Yeah, Bresco. Bresco, yeah, I'm like, I wanna know more about that. So like, when you get a chance, just drop like those maps in the, um, in the yeah. drive and like, we'll like, blast that like that's very um informative yeah and there's like a lot of articles um i can send i can put like a google doc with like a bunch of links and stuff um i don't know how y'all do with the podcast but maybe you can like link them or like something like that however um but yeah there's a lot of a lot of information out there that isn't really like publicized um so it's definitely when we get that information we're just going to share it out on our um socials and stuff Especially last year, we have seen a rise or just more attention being brought to environmental justice issues, like, for example, the deeper intersection of social justice with climate change. Have you seen a positive growth in people becoming more aware of how these issues affect communities? I, I remember a lot um, when COVID first became a thing in the U.S. Um, in like March of last year, there were a lot of, I, I saw a lot of this term, um, ecofascism. And at first I hadn't known what that was, um, but a lot of people were saying, oh, like no one's driving anymore. Um, everyone's staying home and a lot of people aren't working in their factories because, or um, at to the same degree, um, people aren't flying anymore. Um, so they were seeing a lot, there was a lot of air pollution improvements and they were like short term because once places started opening up again, like that was 
like the air quality went back kind of to where it went, what it normally was. And a lot of people, uh, some maybe maybe not a lot of people, but I I saw sometimes um, people saying like, oh, humans are the virus. Um, when it came to discussions about like environmental issues, since you know it seemed like since less humans were like doing things uh, that we normally did uh, outside of this pandemic, that these environmental there were these environmental improvements. But when people say things like human are the humans are the virus, that's something uh, like an eco-fascist term because when you say humans are the virus, that gives power to say who who is the virus, like who is actually causing these problems. And that can also put more blame on um, like marginalized communities and cause those people that are typically like, it's hard to explain, but it's like this idea that you can, that people who are already oppressed uh, typically cause these issues and don't, and, and people can put the blame on them for uh, not working or whatever. It's a really hard topic to explain personally, but I can also put some links in there. Uh, Naomi Klein uh, has talked about it a lot as well. But I saw a lot of those things, those terms go around and they're really harmful and can potentially cause more harm to marginalized communities as well. But I do think that also people are becoming more aware of like the intersections of everything when it comes to health, especially human health and environmental conditions, especially when you um, look at different, like an intersectional discussion. If you look at where like people's housing conditions or if they live in more urban areas, like that's where COVID cases were a lot higher and there was a lot of pressure, a lot more pressure in hospitals because that has to do with air quality and has to do with where you live and how much exposure you are if you're an essential worker. And you know, COVID didn't really change your daily life too much because you're still an essential worker. So you're more likely to also get COVID, but also less likely to be able to quarantine because you have to work and provide for your family and you don't might not have paid sick leave. And so there's a lot of things that come into this discussion about like health equity and where you live and your exposure to COVID-19 that I think have a lot to do with like environmental conditions around you and around your community. And uh, I think a lot of people were starting to make those connections as well and begin to have those connections, have those intersectional discussions. And that goes a lot with, along with the environmental, intersectional environmentalism I was talking about earlier. But yeah, I do think that a lot of the discussions have become more well-rounded in that sense from COVID. Unfortunately, it took COVID to uh, realize, yeah, make us realize that. COVID brought a lot of things to the forefront though, a lot. Yeah, a lot. A lot to people who weren't already like abreast on the issue. I feel like we've always been abreast on certain issues and now we get to have like, um, not even a platform, just more um, focus on it. Exactly, yeah. And more people being able to see the connections and it went easier. Like, oh, that does make sense. Like Exactly. And, and now, like, we just don't have, like, a not saying we don't have a lot to do, but we're not, we're, like, in the house. We're not going anywhere. So, like, it's in your face a little bit more. You know what I'm saying? So, mm-hmm. yeah, when we publish this, like, we want people to really, like, dive in a little bit more. It's all about, like, you know, raising awareness about, you know, what is going on. So, if there was, like, one thing you just want them to say, like, hey, like, take a look into this a little bit more. I know um, intersectional environmental issues are, it's, like, a very broad. So like, what's one thing that you're like, hey, like, go check this out and, uh, you know, uh, talk to your peers. Let me know what you guys think. What would that be? Yeah, that's a really great question. 
And yeah, it's really important to like learn about these things, but also like take action on them. But I guess since like you said, intersectional environmentalism is such like a broad topic, it can include, it includes so many things. And I guess trying to do your research and, and determine like what part of it are you closest to that, you know, speaks to you the most that you might have a connection to that you might have seen or make a connection yourself through different work that you might have already done or uh, volunteering, whatever that might be. If you're a student and you learn about it in a class and it like particularly like angers you or frustrates you and you're like, this is like something that is truly bothering to me. For me, that's personally food. Um, food is something I, I think everyone should have access to like without a doubt. And like, beyond that, like everyone should be able to eat yummy, healthy food and feel nourished. And that fits their cultural needs and backgrounds and all of that. And I, I do work with this organization here at Hopkins called Hopkins Community Connection. Uh, and it's particularly with uh, the Latinx uh, community mostly and making sure that they have access to various uh, food banks or food pickups that they know what you know benefits are available to apply for and help us helping apply for them, but also other things because many of them are undocumented immigrants. So being able to go around that. And again, that's a very intersectional discussion around like immigration status, citizenship as well and access to resources. But like for me, uh, that's something that I've I'm really passionate about and I decided to focus most of like my work around because it is so huge and you can get really exhausted from it and you shouldn't like take all of that on your own especially like those experiencing like these impacts like firsthand like they should not have to fight for themselves or speak up for themselves any more than they already do because that's already so exhausting so I think finding that one one aspect of it that is particularly important to you doing research on it but also speaking to community members about it and you know hearing about it constantly talking about it wherever you can educating yourself so you can better educate those around you even one conversation is impactful and can have a difference on that person that you're speaking to you know maybe maybe it doesn't last but you know you still had that conversation they will remember that encounter with you and I think just finding out like that one little thing. And also, once they're trying to educate yourself in different ways, um, reading a lot of books. I like to read books a lot. <laughs> so reading on different things that are particularly related to that. And also if you're like a student or like you, you have a connection perhaps to university, a big university like Hopkins, which is a predominantly white uh, institution, finding out what changes can happen at that institutional level that you might have more access to uh, or being closer proximity to, whether that's like divestment campaigns or different contracts that your university might um, have with certain corporations, finding those little things that you can get involved with different clubs uh, or organizations off campus, which, is, which would even be better, uh, I think, and gives you more proximity to that. Those little, those little things can make a big impact and they add up. Um, but just finding like that thing that speaks to you and that you can, that angers you even the most so that you can be most involved and willing to, you know, fight for it. Yeah, no, that's really good advice, especially because I know just seeing everything and like, if it's your first time, like, like realizing and just trying to educate yourself about what's happening can be like mentally draining and exhausting. 
and that's just saying something because you're just educating yourself about it and not to mention the people that are actually experiencing so would you be able to talk about just like a specific like campaign or project that you like you're really proud of that you've done or like something you've accomplished just like as an example of like people can do yeah for sure I'm going to talk about my work with Real Food Hopkins which is an organization here um, that I've worked with like the contracts that I was talking about so it was like my first like exposure kind of to the fact that like universities have like contracts with these corporations and I learned about the big three uh, the big three food corporations uh, that typically serve a lot of the food on like college campuses um, hospitals sometimes even private prisons the one we have a partnership with is Bon Appetit, which is seen as the better of the three in terms of like sustainability, um, ethical relationships with the workers, all those things. But the one I first got exposure to was when we were on a working on a Pepsi campaign, trying to cut our contract with um, Pepsi and or make space for um, more local sustainable beverage companies to come in and, you know, take that space. We had exclusivity, which is a fancy term for basically you can only buy Pepsi, I believe 80% uh, Pepsi, and then the rest you can do whatever you want, but it has to be 80% Pepsi. So we wanted to try and cut that clause, um, cut that exclusivity, or completely cut our, our contract with them. And so we did a lot of rallying and organizing around that. We tried to talk to administration a ton, but, you know, they didn't want to talk really much and also talking to a bunch of students. But, and even though we weren't successful in cutting the contract officially with Pepsi, I, I did learn a ton about like relationships that universities have be, and the, the, the stories behind those corporations that sometimes aren't brought to light or that students don't know about because why would the administration tell the students um, something problematic um, that they might not already know? So we did shorten our next contract with Pepsi to three years instead of seven. So that's, that was a big win. And we also delayed the contract from being signed for about six months, which they, would, they were gonna sign it in the summer and they didn't sign it until January of last year. So that was a big win. And, you know, we built like, I think they they respect us a lot more um, because they're like, oh, they're not backing down. Like they don't want that to happen. So now we're trying to work on the contract that we have with the food corporation, Bon Appetit, because it's time for that contract to be re-signed. And we just did a ton of uh, outreach to different businesses that uh, Hopkins buys from uh, the workers union um, and so much more, especially because it's weird with COVID and we couldn't do anything really on campus or in person but that was something I think that really that I was really first exposed to like at the university institutional level I guess and I wouldn't have known about um unless I went to like their first meeting or something and I was like oh, this is really messed up and I want to work with them so I I would say yeah that was like something I'm pretty proud of and I still work with Real Food and I'm really excited to see what happens with the food contract. And that was Real Food? No, what was it? Hopkins? What was it called? The Real Food, it's called Real Food Hopkins. And we work a lot based, we're like a chapter of Uprooted and Rising, which is a national organization for food sovereignty, food justice. And yeah, they also, I can also put links to their websites and 
docs, all that stuff on that Google Docs. So yeah. Yes, please do. Um, so again, this is a tiny chat. So of course, we want to ask you so many more questions. <laughs> we definitely want to bring you back for sure. You um like have a like a lot of knowledge about things that we definitely want to get into in the future. Um, so if you could let everyone know that's listening, like where they can reach you. If you have any social media, as far as like your groups go, just let them know like where they can find you and find more information about you. Totally. Yeah. I'll, I'll put links in the Google doc. Um, my Instagram is just my name, um, but one S uh, so merges between my first and last name. Um, my, I can put my email also in the Google doc. Um, and if you, you guys can share that out, but it's just my first and last name, 797 at gmail.com. And yeah, I mean, I have other social media that I'm forgetting my usernames for, but I will put that all out there and y'all feel free to share it all. Um, and please contact me. Uh, I love talking to people about this kind of stuff and talking about organizations that I've worked with that are really cool. And yeah, everyone has like a role and a voice. Like if you're passionate about something and you have a personal connection to it, definitely just speak up about it and you know there's different ways to do that or fit in your comfort zone whatever that might be but yeah thank you so much for having me <laughs> thank you so much for coming and talking with us today it was a pleasure to have you yes. with us yeah thank you really appreciated it and you know this is a great podcast lead initiative so uh we'll definitely share it out and thank you again so much Thank you everyone so much for listening. Definitely go follow Laís on all of her social media accounts and I will link all of the additional information if you want to check out anything that we talked about today to our social media accounts. On Instagram, we are at tinygreenchat and on everything else, we are tinygreenchats. Follow and subscribe for weekly podcast episodes released every Thursday for Tiny Chat Thursdays. Um, And yeah, we'll see you next time.